you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. Every week, we offer a critical, informed perspective on what's happening in entertainment. We also highlight innovative artists and their creative content. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, five years after the Me Too movement began, powerful male figures in the industry continued to be identified and convicted like disgraced R&B star R. Kelly. Plus, I talked to documentary filmmaker Brett Morgan. His past subjects include Jane Goodall and Kurt Cobain. His new documentary is about David Bowie, but it's designed to tell you more about your own life than about his. What I love about Bowie is how he's an enigma and how the more I look at him, the more I listen to him, the more I learn about myself. And I think that was by design. But first, here's my retake for this week. The industry takeaways from Monday's Emmy Awards were almost entirely qualitative. The White Lotus was the big winner with 10 Emmys. HBO and HBO Max took home the most trophies with 38 combined. And, well, the TV audience was tiny, down 25% from a year ago for the lowest rated Emmys ever. But amidst all those numbers was a more important quantitative fact— the Emmys narrowly avoided another no-people-of-color whitewash. In last year's Emmys, every single one of the 12 top acting winners were white. And all four of the major series winners, that's drama, comedy, limited, and variety, was headed by white talent or a largely white ensemble. The TV Academy actually commissioned a study of itself in 2021 focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the report concluded, I'm quoting it now, there appears to be a deep-seated resistance in the Academy's culture to moving forward, changing the way things have always been done, and creating a new future for television. In Monday's show, the Academy dodged a bullet after the first four Emmys went to white performers. Cheryl Lee Ralph was named Best Supporting Actress in a comedy series for Abbott Elementary. Ralph is the first black woman or woman of any color to claim the Supporting Comedy Actress Emmy since 1987. After she sang a portion of the Diane Reeves song, Endangered Species, Ralph said this from the Emmy stage. To anyone who has ever, ever had a dream and thought your dream wasn't, wouldn't, couldn't come true, I am here to tell you that this is what believing looks like. This is what striving looks like. And don't you ever, ever give up on you. Her sentiments were echoed and even sharpened a bit by the singer Lizzo when she took the stage later in the ceremony. Lizzo won the Emmy for Best Reality Competition Program for her dance show, Lizzo's Watch Out for the Big Girls. When I was a little girl, all I wanted to see was me in the media. Someone fat like me, black like me, beautiful like me. <laughs> (laughs) 
If I could go back and tell little Lizzo something, I'd be like, you're going to see that person, but bitch is going to have to be you. <laughs> Working to ensure that an organization is inclusive is the morally right thing to do. And when it involves a public demonstration like the Emmys, that commitment can also change the future. It's one of the only ways that the next generation of creative artists, especially those from underrepresented backgrounds, can see people who look like them winning an award and then imagine their future selves doing the same. Coming up after the break, the surreal, fragmented, yet compelling documentary Moon Age Daydream about David Bowie that's almost as unconventional as its subject. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. CinemaCon, if you're not familiar, is an annual convention of movie exhibitors in Las Vegas. It's typically a rah-rah showcase of all the big movies coming soon to a theater near you. When I went there in May, I wasn't surprised at all to see clips from films like Top Gun Maverick, Avatar, The Way of Water, and Jurassic World Dominion. But there was one movie that just didn't seem to fit with all the others. Watching filmmaker Brett Morgan present clips at CinemaCon from Moon Age Daydream, his experimental David Bowie documentary, felt like an out-of-body experience. The movie resists almost every trope of the music movie biography genre. There are no formal interviews or a biographical timeline. Instead, Moon Age Daydream is a rapid-fire collage of images, sounds, and ephemera filled with film clips and animation scenes that at first glance don't seem to have anything to do with David Bowie. While the film seemed out of place in comparison to the other movies presented at CinemaCon, the thing it does share, in my view, is that it deserves a theatrical showing just as much as any superhero movie. And if you want your cinematic experience turned up to 11, per Spinal Tap, you can even see Moon Age Daydream in IMAX. When I talked with Brett Morgan this week, we discussed his unusual approach to making the movie and also how it helped him find his way through a major health scare. My Achilles heel with this film, as soon as I started, I knew I was trying to create a different type of genre. It's it, When we say a musical documentary about David Bowie, you assume it's biographical. And I had no interest in creating a biographical documentary. They've already done those. And um, and I don't believe that David Bowie um, is enhanced by deconstructing or trying to reveal the magic. Uh, to me, there's a, there's what I love about Bowie is how he's an enigma and how 
the more I look at him, the more I listen to him, the more I learn about myself. And I think that was by design. Um, and I try to design the film using that same ideas of inviting projection. And, um, and how do I prepare the audience for a non-biographical? I mean, there's a little bit of biographical components in there, but I'm trying to reach something for something different. I'm trying to reach for something that you can't get in a book, that you can't get in a Wikipedia. It's something that's sort of unexplained. You know, how does one explain the magic of David Bowie? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's if there's a tangible to it. And so I wanted to, you know, to create a David Bowie experience. And I'll tell you something crazy. I went to Cannes. I really did. I, I thought I got the film. I thought I would understand the film. And I really didn't. I didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't have any notes from anyone. I made the film pretty much by myself. So I was just like, oh, some people will get it. Some, some won't. And it's just like my brain was blown away that people actually like were able to deal with it, you know, and sort of embrace, not deal with it, embrace it. And Monday night, we had our first um, really public screenings because film festivals, you know, it's a very specific audience at a film festival. So Monday night, we opened on 150 IMAX screens as a, as a special advance preview. And I'm smiling today, man, because I can't believe that people are just taking it at face value and accepting this and, in fact, celebrating it for what it isn't. Right. You know, and and it's really kind of one of the most exciting moments of my career, you know, because making this film was for myself and for Paul and my sound team and um, the other few collaborators I had. We didn't know what we were going, you know, into the wilderness, into uncharted territory. And we just and, and, and to have to be able to do that and to have it recognized and embraced my favorite review of this film the other day said this film should be for all practical purposes an utter disaster and it's a miracle that it isn't and i'm like dude you have no idea how I, that resonated with me so much but when you say it's well received i don't think that means that everybody receives it the same way and i suspect Regardless of what your intentions might have been, the fact that different people can see different things in the movie, to me, might feel like the best compliment, that you are not being didactic. You're not telling people how to think. You're giving them all these opportunities to interpret an artist, and people can come to their own conclusions or read into the film what they want to read into. That was, well, that's Bowie. I mean, that's Bowie. That's the essence of Bowie. What is the meaning of pick any Bowie song? We're all going to come up with something different. Right. And in fact, you know, when Bowie employed the cut-up process and invited that sort of chaos into his song construction, was choosing lyrics because of the consonants and the vowels. And when we go through Bowie's catalog, it's even, I can't even tell you which ones are in that, from that place and which ones aren't. We just, we apply, he invited us to project and discover ourselves in his art. And um, it was a conscious act of a relationship between the spectator and the artist. One of the things that's noticeable, especially in the early interviews, is that people are, David Bowie wants to talk about who he is, and all the interviews want to talk about is how he looks. And in some <laughs> ways, that almost is like you're answering that question because 
you're not going to engage in the how he looks, but you know, it's certainly you can you see him in all sorts of different getups. But you are going to actually do the opposite of that. You are not going to indulge that question, but you're going to try to give us the answer to the question that wasn't asked so many times in so many interviews. You know, well, there's a lot of gotcha journalism with David, but then also it's fair to know that in terms of televised interviews, one of the things that really surprised me was. David didn't appear on American television until the Dick Cavett show. And then he only made another one or two appearances after that up until like 78. And so what that told me was, I, and when I was going through all the media, I called my archivist and I said, is this everything? And she said, yeah, you have everything in existence. I go, wait a second. This is all the public. This is before MTV. So I'm like, this is all they knew of David Bowie. It was all projection. He, he gave us such little morsels. And we all filled in the blanks. And it was he, you know, there was this interview that was really important for me in terms of understanding how to approach Bowie. I don't use it in the film, I don't think, but it was from 73. And it was with Mick Rock, uh, the photographer who shot all the wonderful Bowie uh, images from that period. And they were backstage and he said, uh, David, your record company asked me to ask you about this Ziggy Stardust album you got coming out. Um, I hear it's a space uh, concept album. That's some sort of space age alien. And David said, nah, man, I only mentioned space on two songs. There's like Ray Gun, Moonbeam. It's all a gas, dude. They're going to fill in the blanks. They're going to project the whole thing. And I was like, oh, my God, he, it's conscious. It's by design. And um, that was really revealing because that I didn't need to use that. I just needed to know that. That was so I was collecting and collating all of his methodologies and techniques anytime he would mention it and embracing I me. Mean, this film was edited with oblique strategy cards, you know, two inches from my hand. And it, and the thing with oblique strategies is they seem like this is kind of silly. They're, they're designed to be silly. They're designed to get you out of your element. But everything about the approach to this film was counterintuitive to the point that I made a film by myself without a producer and without a staff or, and without a researcher. That's counterintuitive. You're not supposed to do that. And there's a reason. I would never do it again. But it's not just about yourself because there are moments, especially in the latter third of the film, where David is talking about things that we all think about, our sense of purpose, what we want to do, how we're going to be remembered. I, I love this line, I really have to come back to my life uh, missing out on your own life. It's almost like we're participants in a therapy session where he's saying a lot of the same things that a lot of people think. And that, to me, is like a whole different part of the documentary. I would say this, John, in response to that, that he was talking to me. It was, I'm glad that my therapy connected with you and resonated with you. Um, but I was creating a roadmap for how to lead a more balanced and fulfilling life because when I started this film, I had a heart attack and flatlined and uh, was in a coma for a week. And um, I, I had a lot of, uh, think, yeah, I had to figure out how to put my life back together and what I wanted to do with my life. And so this whole film for me was very personal, but like all art, if you, you know, follow your muse or whatever it is, you hope that it connects with other people. Um, but I, you know, a lot of this movie, what 
there was a, a line that I heard David say when he was doing a promotion for, um, uh, I think it was Aladdin saying in 73 or 74, he was doing a, I had this tape that I found in the vault of him um, doing uh, radio promos, but they recorded all of the outtakes. It was really interesting. And um, there was this part where he discusses that they said, how do you describe, describe your music? And he goes, well, it's that moment right before you go to sleep when you're still sort of between a state of consciousness and, and unconsciousness, that's what I'm trying to arrive at. And I think I really took that to heart and to the point that I would sleep with my avid was in my bedroom and I'd wake up at two in the morning, go cut and go, go back to sleep at five in the morning. The last scene of the film, the climax of the film, which where I combined um, Sun Machine and Station, that happened that way. That was how the whole experience was. It was about creating an environment and a situation where I could be receptive and open to David's techniques, employ them. And that, in that sense, the form is the content. I want to ask you about oblique strategies. These are cards that are designed by Brian Eno, who was a very important Bowie collaborator, and Peter Schmidt. I opened one randomly, and my oblique strategy says, turn it upside down. Um, So how do those factor in your creation of the film and what do they challenge? How do they challenge you to think differently? They work in a very kind of subconscious way, right? So the one you just said, sometimes you get the cards, you're like, how do I do that? Right. But it's, it's already done it. It's already done its work without, you're not supposed to like, it's not something you're supposed to like really understand. Um, And so they would just, they would sort of just make an adjustment, you know, in the sort of point of view. And sometimes they're very direct. And the few times I had to bring in a guest editor, I'd give them a card and they would, you know, sometimes give me a weird look and be like, make of it whatever you want. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But, you know, there were things like, you know, uh, I think in the film, I have the one about changing instruments. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not an editor. I don't, I, I mean, I, 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 I've edited my films with two, the last two, Jane and Montage, with um, with a, a, a really good editor named Joe Bashinkowski. And, um, um, but, uh, you know, the idea of me editing by myself is is, is haphazard. I mean, I'm, I'm a maximalist. Like, that's a dangerous place for, you know, me to be. And I'm also really sloppy. Guess what? This film was not about virtuosity. The one strategy from David that I think was just so, that speaks to what we're talking about, is this idea that there are no mistakes. Right. Uh, you're, you know, I would edit because I'm not a professional editor. I would have like 27 video tracks because I just don't know how to clean up my system. And then I would go to slide something on the chain and it would open up the door to some shot that was not supposed to be there. And I'd get like, oh, that looks kind of good. And in the old me would have been like, no, no, you can't do that. And I remember being at the color correct where you go shot to shot. And, you know, you're not actually rolling. And a shot would come up. I'd be like, what's that? And Tyler would go, that's in the film. I'd be like, well, I remember that. And it'd be like one frame that somehow got left over. And he goes, you want to go take it out? I'd be like, no, let's, let's, it's, it was there for a reason. There's a reason that's supposed to be there. Let's just let it stay. I want to come back to this idea of virtuosity because David Bowie, absolutely was a virtuoso. He might not have thought it of himself, but he was. I want to play a clip from the film. This is uh, Bowie performing a song later in his career that's kind of a turning point. But I want to talk about 
this footage. So let's listen to a little bit of this song. David Boy, that's what that excites me. His style. Yeah. I like his makeup. You like his makeup? <laughs> I like his music. Let's dance. Put on your red shoes. And I, dance a, I love what those people have to say that they see something very different and all are legitimate. And B, we get to see Bowie performing, and it's you want to get up out of your theater seat and start dancing. Wow, I mean, they're cathartic, you know. Like you, you know, I felt like the performance. Someone said to me uh, the other day, like you, you let some of the songs go out for a while, and I was like, yeah, they're earned. You know, you, you, you get, you get to that point. Like Heroes, when or Space Oddity, when those songs come on this film, like you're, you need them there. Like you're yearning for it, like where David is when Space Oddity, which I don't want to give to the audience where it comes up in the film because it's in a very kind of unexpected place, but it changes your whole idea of that song in a way. I, I think for me, it did. Um, going back to the virtuosity thing though, um, I got to share something because you're like, no, David was a virtuoso. No, here's the thing. So I had performances like, let's say the Let's Dance performance that had recorded on three different nights. It was impossible for me to mismatch those nights because the tempos would shift. The the solos would shift. It was like, I was like, wait, what's going on? There, every, every, everything sounded different. I called the estate very early on and I said, Can I get the outtakes for some of these songs? And Tony said, There are no outtakes. David never laid down more than one or two tracks. David Bowie, this is this is my take. You ready? He's a cultural anthropologist. He's the greatest historian, perhaps, of the latter half of the 20th century. He was so present and aware of his environment. He was times making timestamps. That's why he wasn't doing multiple takes. It was whatever it was. That's what it was supposed to be, and it's a record of that moment. And then he would carry on to the next adventure. In the prologue of your movie, Bowie is talking, and he references a deep and formidable mystery. Is he still to you a deep and formidable mystery at the end of the film? Was he ever? David Jones is, to a certain extent. Um, Bowie, uh, you know, it'd be way too arrogant and lofty for me to say I understood the Bowie in quotations, but I I think I got a, a fairly decent handle on it by the time it was all said and done. I think that... I was obviously I had a vantage point that nobody else has ever had. I had access to all known media in existence with David and watched every single frame. And I think that what I understood was that there's a certain mystery that can't be fully unraveled. But I I did. Yeah, I feel like I got to a good place. And I think that the fact it's resonating in the way it is, is um, just sort of I, I it's playing like a Bowie song right now. You know, so I, I feel like I feel like that's it's kind of working. And um, I got to tell you, man, I grew up in L.A. I, uh, uh, you know, cinema is my church and I've been on the road for the last couple of months. And uh, when I saw the big banner drop in front of the Chinese theater three days ago, I, I was supposed to be in Copenhagen this week. And I was like, I'm going back to L.A. Like, I'm going to want to go hang out with Bowie fans on Hollywood Boulevard in the church of uh, the Chinese, the, the Holy Grail of cinema. 
and um and celebrate and and you know the bow community is like um i, I don't know it's 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 it's, it's been a incredible uh it's so fortunate to have come out of this and um you know in one piece and in, in a much better place we're listening to lazarus david bowie's song from his last album black star brett morgan's documentary is called moon age daydream brett thanks so much for taking your time and thanks for making the movie thank you man thanks for having me look up here i'm in heaven I've got scars that can't be seen I've got drama can't be stolen Moon Age Daydream is in theaters now. After the break, former film producer Harvey Weinstein was convicted of sexual assault and rape in New York in 2020. He'll soon go on trial right here in Los Angeles. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat. It's usually with KPCC Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. This week, Sharon McNary was filling in. We talked about the latest developments of some high-profile sexual assault cases in the entertainment industry, starting with Harvey Weinstein. It seems hard to believe, but we're quickly approaching the five-year anniversary of the revelations of Harvey Weinstein's 30-year history of rape and sexual assaults. The New York Times and The New Yorker published reports of the abuse in October 2017, and Weinstein was convicted of rape in January 2020 and sentenced to 23 years. But you say that's not the end of it for Weinstein and others, is it? It is not. First of all, it is amazing that it's five years already. It seems like it was only yesterday. But in regards to Weinstein, He is actually scheduled to go on trial in Los Angeles in about four weeks on October 10th, where he faces 11 counts of rape and sexual assault. And jury selection in the trial could probably take a number of weeks, if not months. So in that instance, Weinstein has tried and failed to postpone the trial because he is currently appealing his New York conviction. He is also arguing that the upcoming movie She Said, which is a drama based on the Pulitzer Prize winning Weinstein work by New York Times reporters Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey would create negative publicity when it comes out in theaters in November. And then finally, he has complained that he's not receiving adequate dental care in jail and thus could look indigent in court. So far, the judge has said she's not worried about the movie and she'll see what she can do in terms of getting him a dentist. Huh. Well, there's other current cases and potential new cases involving other entertainment figures. That's right. Jurors in Chicago have convicted R. Kelly in a federal courthouse. The singer faced 13 charges, including producing child pornography, enticing minors for sex, and trying to coach and coerce witnesses in his 2008 child pornography trial where he was acquitted. So Kelly was sentenced this June to 30 years following his racketeering and 
sex trafficking conviction a year ago in New York. So the Chicago trial is different from the New York trial. And separately, The Hollywood Reporter now has an exhaustive news story about a Hollywood writer and producer who was arrested in July on 20 charges of sexual assault, including rape. Oh, my. Details? Well, the alleged perpetrator's name Eric Weinberg. He worked as a writer and producer on Scrubs in Californication. And when he was arrested, the authorities said he allegedly assaulted a number of women from 2012 to 2019. He was said to lure women to his home under the guise of a photo shoot, which escalated into a graphic photo shoot and then a sexual assault. In the Hollywood Reporter story, author Samuel Braslow spoke to more than two dozen purported victims. So after Weinberg was arrested, other people came forward. And they all describe very similar tactics allegedly used by Weinberg. And in some ways, those tactics mirror what Weinstein would do, create a reason to get women into a place where they couldn't leave easily under false pretenses and then assault them. Weinberg remains free on $3.25 million in bail. And a lawyer for Weinberg, who is in a custody battle, said, I'm quoting her now, these claims have previously been investigated and reviewed by both law enforcement and the Ellie family court. And the results have continued to unveil a myriad of evidence, documentation, and expert analysis that wholly undermine the narrative now being promulgated. But, but so many alleged victims. I mean, with Kelly and Weinberg and Weinstein, the alleged victims waited sometimes years to speak up. But what common threads do you see among them? Well, a couple. One is that a number of these women were attracted to people like Weinstein and Weinberg and Kelly because it's an incredibly competitive business. And if they are expressing interest in your career as, a, as an actor, you might be inclined, even if some alarm bells are going off, to see if that is actually a legitimate offer. And with Weinstein, as Ashley Judd can attest, you know he threatened and then did ruin people's careers if they came forward. And I think a lot of it with R. Kelly was basically he cut these children off, and these are children from their families, so they didn't have anywhere to go. They were basically kind of um, kept away from anybody. They were basically locked up in, in, in plain sight. And then with Weinberg, I think a lot of it was shame. A lot of these women you know, felt horrible about what happened. And listen, there was a lot of shame and stigma attached to sexual assault and rape. But when one person comes forward, as happened with you know, Harvey Weinstein, others come forward too. And there is certainly strength in numbers. Definitely a deluge. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. The associate producer is Sabir Brava. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.